So, Father, take our wandering hearts and our slow minds and quicken us, sharpen us, give us the grace to have ears to hear, give us a sensitivity to your word. Father, thank you for times like these when you work on us, chisel us with your word. Father, we commit ourselves to the hearing and then the doing of the word. We want to grow. We want to conform to the image of Christ. We want to humble ourselves to his teaching. Give us understanding, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was only about ten months ago that two young girls in Pakistan received a copy through the Voice of the Martyrs ministry of a little booklet called The Story of Jesus. These two young girls, I don't know their names, received this booklet, The Story of Jesus, in their native language of Urdu. The Christians who distributed the booklets happily reported that these girls trusted Christ after reading these engaging booklets that explained the gospel. Just a couple of months later, however, on a sunny Sunday morning, two suicide bombers entered the All Saints Church compound in Peshawar, Pakistan. These Islamists waited until the services were over and nearly 500 worshipers began to gather for a meal together. At 11.45 that morning, they detonated their suicide vests and killed 78 people. They injured another 130 It was the deadliest attack on the Christian minority in the history of Pakistan. In October, the writer of this article from Voice of the Martyrs received word that the two young sisters who had received the story of Jesus during the July 2013 distribution and had begun to follow Jesus were killed in that attack on that bright Sunday, sunny Sunday morning. I wonder if it occurred to you at all that there would be the possibility of a suicide bomber in our service today. I wonder, as you rose this morning and planned your day, if the thought ever occurred to you that your Christian faith might cost you today. I invite you to turn to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 5, where we encounter the conclusion of the Beatitudes. It is interesting in our list of Beatitudes that as Jesus concludes his teaching, his opening remarks to the Sermon on the Mount, which continues through Matthew's 5, 6, and 7, we're just making our way into this passage And we encounter that familiar list that we know of as the Beatitudes, these beautiful attitudes, these points of blessing, where Jesus lists these things that if you possess them, if they characterize you, you are blessed. That deep-seated spiritual contentment and happiness under which God can bless you within the blessing and framework of the blessing of God. Let's read our list quickly to follow up to our text for today. You're going to see that Jesus will repeat this beatitude. He adds to it in the second part. 
Some Bible commentaries suggest that the reason Jesus repeated this beatitude is because it was so stunning, so shocking, that he needed to repeat it so that they could get it. Yes, that's what I meant to say, you might think of. When we read it, you'll understand better, and today, verses 10, 11, and 12, under the title of Suffering for Jesus, are verses that I would like us to react to as a church. How do we react to this? What do we do with this? What is our mindset and heart attitude to be? Matthew 5, beginning with verse 2, And Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You're also going to notice, by the way, he begins and then closes out this section with this claim that theirs is the kingdom of heaven, able to possess and live within the domain of God under his blessing. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who, our text now, are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What an interesting passage of scripture this is. These beatitudes that we've been studying, starting out with all humility in brokenness before the Lord, and they progress then to the reality of forgiveness, to the outworking. What begins in our list of beatitudes is seeing ourselves before a holy God, then responding to His grace, and then interacting with others. And the conclusion of the list has to do with uh, of being kind and merciful being a peacemaker, and now it concludes then with how others might treat us and what our response is to be. I don't know about you, but I think this is really weird teaching. I'm very, very comfortable with not being persecuted. I really like going to Chick-fil-A and having a sweet tea, you know, and just a good day to mow the lawn. And here Jesus is interrupting our lives. Here Jesus is poking us in the eye saying that we will be blessed and we should have rejoicing when we're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Persecution is nothing new to the church. It's it's not new to Christianity. Parenthetically, let me add that Christians are not the only people who suffer for their faith. Indeed, even Muslims who were inflicting the persecution in the opening story. There are seasons in history where Muslims and people of other faiths, Hindus, have also been martyred or suffered for their faith. There is something distinct, though, about Christianity and suffering in that it is in a historical context that from the inception of Christianity... Christians have been hated. Christ himself was hated, nailed to a cross. I mean, think about what he did. Made the blind to see, the lame to walk, the sick well. 
He takes crusty old drunken men, takes away their addictions, puts a love for their wife and their family back in their, heart, in their hearts, helps them get out of bed and go to work with a spirit of joy and be productive. That's Jesus. Forgive you of your sin for eternity, give you everlasting life, save you from hell, and we can't stand him. What is that all about? And yet here we are, as Jesus is teaching, and he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he says it again for emphasis, Blessed are you, and he adds, when you are reviled or insulted, the NIV and NAS will say, and you are persecuted, and people utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account... We want to react to this teaching. It's, it's not new, this thing of persecution. Um, as I was saying, even in our New Testament, we have Stephen as the first martyr. We have, through the course of history, in the early centuries, we have the, the early Christians being condemned to death for entertainment in the, in the arenas of Rome. Church history tells us that when believers were rounded up, put into captivity and then persecuted, that often it was for the very simple fact that they would not burn or pinch incense and say, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord. They wouldn't do that. Say, no, I can't do that. Jesus is my Lord. And that, in and of itself, would condemn you to death. In the persecuted church of the first century, you know the images of the Colosseums, And how the seats would be packed with people with a bloodthirst. People there to entertain themselves by the destruction of life. We're told that wild dogs, hyenas, wild cats would be kept in cages, starved for days on end, poked with sticks, enraged. And they would gather these Christians in the middle of the arena and history tells us that the men, the fathers, would group together in the middle and then they would put their wives around them and their older children around them and on the outest circle of the group of people, these Christians in the arena, moments away from their death, they would put their littlest of children because the wild dogs and the cats would would kill them very quickly. But by the time they worked their way in, their bloodthirst was satisfied to the degree that they would toy with those, and so the men would remain last, and then to suffer even at the hands of the gladiators. It's unimaginable. There's all kinds of stories through history. For example, in places like Japan, in the year 1630, some 300,000 Christians, we're told, mainly Roman Catholic Christians, but those who would name the name of Christ, were executed and often by crucifixion. And there's one account given in this historical account that at least 70 one time were crucified and they crucified them down by the sea at low tide, upside down, so that when the tide came in, they would drown. The stories go on. In present day, um, there are not in our lifetime present day... um, my younger adult days. Idi Amin was destroying the church in Uganda. Horrible stories of abuse, slaughter by, the, by guns and machetes and starvation, injustices. 
It is said that the soldiers of Idi Amin would come into a Christian community and they would suffer unspeakable abuse upon that community. They would kill the men by burying them in over their head, but they would leave their hands out of the dirt so that when other people come, they would see their arms sticking up out of the dirt just as a testimonial that he had been there and destroyed that community. The stories are endless. The descriptions are grotesque. In present-day Iran, the story and testimony comes of one Christian injected with radioactive material just to give him a slow, horrible death. The stories go on. So that raises to me my first reaction with this text. And it is, how does this apply to me? I've known Jesus for 48 years. 48 years ago, I kneeled by my father's bed, my mother and father's bed, and prayed, and I can remember it clearly. Prayed to ask Jesus into my life. Forgive me of my sins, recognizing that he had substituted in. By grace through faith, he saved me. That he kept the law for me. I couldn't do it myself. I don't know that I've ever been persecuted. Kids laughed at me in third grade when my mom wouldn't sign a permission slip so I could go with the third grade class on a field trip to see Chitty Chitty Bang Bang because we didn't go to movies because my mom said we're Christians. All right? Go figure. Pretty tough persecution there, you know. you got to spend the day in the fourth grade class. To this day, and mom's gone, I never asked her, why did you even send me to school that day? So point number one of our message is a made-up word. Um, I confess that, uh, you know, if you, you, you really ought to be embarrassed about your pastor half the time at least. <laughs> but um, I needed a word that means it doesn't apply to us. So the prefix un means not, right? U-N, not. Applicable. Unapplicable. That's word number one. It's really inapplicable. I don't think unapplicable is in the dictionary. Now all these guys are looking there. Um, And it was pointed out to me by very reliable sources following the first service that that point number one is probably not a word. You better look up those words. Well, I am communicating to you that it's not a word. I don't think it's a word. It is now. All right? (laughs) But my first reaction with this text is, how does it apply? And so, number one, it's unapplicable. How does this apply to us? We don't suffer for Christ. We don't have persecution. We don't have people lying about us. And so I have to ask the question, why not? Why in North Korea? Why in, in, in Pakistan, in Iran, in, in places like this? Burkina Faso, why are places like this... Why, are, why is the church being attacked and tortured and persecuted, but not us? Why is it so easy to be a Christian here? And did Jesus mean this for us? I'd like to suggest quickly four thoughts that came to my mind as to why our first reaction is that it's unapplicable. It, it doesn't fit us. The first one is, is that we have the great privilege of being raised in a nation 
upon which our founding fathers built our laws and our systems and our courts upon a biblical morality. That is, the guiding documents of our nation were written by God-fearing men. Not all were born-again Christ-following Christians, but they were, by and large, a God-fearing men who believed that the Bible was a source of truth, or the source of truth, and so they established a system of morality that is based upon the Bible. So, for the next over 200 years we've been able to enjoy a culture and a society that was based on a Christian worldview. Therefore, we don't get in trouble for having Bibles. Therefore, we have a freedom in our faith. We can take the Sunday school bus like we used to do when I was a little boy in South Chicago and drive up and down the streets and holler and wave and and encourage people to come to our vacation Bible school and hear about Jesus. And nobody threw a rock at us. So the first reason that this seems at first unapplicable is that we live in a nation that was established with essentially a Christian worldview. Now, we've been, it has been pronounced in no uncertain terms by people in the highest office of our land that this is no longer a Christian nation and we are starting to feel a shift. We're starting to feel a change. But secondly, I think we don't suffer for Christ here Because we also live in America, which has very much become a pluralistic society, where one of the highest norms of pluralism is tolerance. So therefore, you can can do whatever you want to do. You You can be Wiccan or a witch, and you can take on all kinds of bizarre religious and lifestyle forms. And you can call yourself whatever you want to call yourself. And it's okay because it's a great virtue in a pluralistic society to let people be whoever they are. And so far, we're still benefiting from that pluralism. As long as we don't tell someone else what to do. As long as we don't act like we have the end all, which if you're a Bible-believing Christian, you ultimately do. And so therefore, we are feeling the pressure of change in this area as well. I think when we look at the church at large in America, number three, why we're not suffering persecution, is that I think it is indicative of a lack of distinction between the church and the world. Let me say that again. I think one reason that we don't suffer persecution is that it is indicative of a lack of distinction between the church and the world. We're an awful lot like everybody else around us. It doesn't make that much difference whether we follow Jesus or not. And in fact, it has been a great movement of the last quarter century or more to make church look like a place everybody who doesn't know Jesus or know about Jesus or care about Jesus to be very comfortable in which to come and settle in and to not be offended. And so therefore, maybe part of the problem that we don't have any kind of persecution is that we're such a vanilla blah church that we don't even live out the distinctions of Christ enough to be pointed at and say, they've been with Jesus. Oh, no, no, no. Everybody's welcome here. And they are. Finally, a fourth reason that comes to my mind, not only are Christian moorings and the foundations of our Christian worldview upon which our nation was founded, this element of pluralism that, that elevates 
as a virtue, being whatever you want to be and no one can tell you what to be, the fact that we have, by and large, perhaps a carnal church, a worldly church. Finally, I think that when we look at ourselves theologically, by and large, it's not difficult to document that across America, we have been the proponents of a passive gospel that has recreated Jesus into somebody who's very comfortable, not upsetting. And there has been the promotion of a a very passive, comfortable Jesus who will not upset your lifestyle, who if you just fit him in along with your other plans, life will go better. And ultimately you'll have heaven. Hallelujah. Now there's some truth there. But Jesus himself didn't talk like that. Jesus didn't talk about coming in and and you accommodating him. Jesus asked for you to die to yourself and to surrender all that you are to him. There's a difference there in that kind of gospel. A repentance-based gospel, a gospel that begins with the sinfulness of the individual and ends with the beauty of our Savior who then owns everything about us. So, my first reaction to our text today is that it's unapplicable. Let's move on and let's remind ourselves, too, though, that as we read this passage, it does make following Christ, number two, as I react to it, undesirable. Who wants to follow Christ if persecution is part of the package? Let's turn to Matthew chapter 10, and let's see what Jesus said here. You're going to see this reflected in the writing, the writers of the epistles as well. But notice further teaching that Jesus gave to his disciples when he was sending them out. He says in the Beatitudes, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. He points out that there's a couple different ways. That idea of revile is the idea of being insulted. So at one level, there's words that will be spoken against you if you're a follower of Christ. He then also goes on in verse 11, and you can stay in Matthew 10. He goes on in verse 11 of our Beatitudes. Persecute you, they utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. They're going to lie about you, is what we would expect. So they will insult us or revile us. That's a strong word, revile. It's a put-down word. So they'll revile you or insult you with their words. They will commit evil against you by lying about you. And then the whole idea of a physical persecution, this idea of persecution is to be chased after and harassed, physically and bodily harmed. So here's what Jesus reminded his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, beginning with verse 16. He says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And indeed, that's exactly what happened to the disciples, isn't it? Fox's Book of Martyrs is a great resource 
some of it based upon tradition, an oral tradition passed down and then written down by the historian John Fox, other parts of it more documentable. The idea of how all of the disciples ended up being martyrs for Christ, perhaps John not. John was on the Isle of Patmos and perhaps died of old age there, it is thought. There is some tradition that says he was boiled in hot oil for his faith. I don't know how you live through that, but maybe he did. Andrew having his brains dashed out with a fuller's club. Thomas run through with a spear. Peter, tradition says, was crucified upside down. The Apostle Paul, no doubt, was martyred with a sword or an axe and had his head cut off. They will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Verse 19, when they deliver you over, don't be anxious how you will speak or what you will say, for what are you to say? What, what you are to say will be given you in that hour, so boys, don't worry about it. For it is not for you to speak, but the Spirit of your Father will speaking through you. And there are tremendous records of martyrs through the centuries. Some that were burned at the stake in the Middle Ages. And some of the speeches that they gave. And some of the testimonies that they gave as they were dying. How the Spirit of God just gave them words. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And father and his child. Father and the father his child. And the children will rise up against parents. To have them put to death. The gospel of Jesus can even divide families. People inside a family will hate each other over the gospel. And you will be hated for, by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. This idea of enduring to the end and, and not exhausting all of the towns of refuge before the Son of Man returns, a reference to Christ's return, is one clue among other passages in the epistles that in the latter days persecution will increase and that the name of Christ will be even less acceptable in later days before the return of Christ. Look what he says now in verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? In other words, they looked at Jesus, called him Satan or the devil. Why, won't they, why would they look at you and say, you're a good guy if you look anything like Christ? It all adds up to being a reaction to our passage today that, number two, it's undesirable. Who wants this? Who wants to be tortured? A few weeks ago, we had Paul Popov with us. He is, um, I don't know how old he is. He looked to me to be about a, over 60, under 80, over 60. His father's name is Harlan Popov. His father's book has, has sold um, like incredible millions of copies and, and it's been translated over one million copies in print and translated into over 25 languages. Uh, a 15-year-old Van Marceau read this book. It's why it was really interesting to me to meet Paul Popov. We used to have a program in our church called BMA, Bible Memory Association. And if you did your BMA, you got awards and prizes that you could sign up for. And I love to read books. And I remember reading Tortured for His Faith. 
Harlan Popov was a follower of Christ in Bulgaria in the late 1940s, in the early 50s, throughout the 50s, when communist, the communist USSR was pressing in and they hated the West and they hated Christianity and there was not freedom of speech and there was not a freedom to meet publicly. I thought it might be interesting to read a little bit from this book in the context of this is what Jesus said you should expect. And I say, I don't really want any part of that. Harlan Popov was arrested at his house, taken in a black car by men in black suits. He never saw his family again for 13 years. Early on, he was in solitary confinement part of his time. But one of the, one of the things that they did to him that is detailed in the book, is they made him stand eight inches from a white painted enamel wall with bright lights on the wall. And he was standing there and he was to answer their questions. And if he didn't answer their questions the way they wanted him to answer their questions, which was different every time they asked the question, they would smack him upside the head with their hands or with sticks. If he blinked, they would smack him upside the head. Let me just read day four. He ends up standing in front of the wall on his feet for 14 days. He has no idea how it happened. He has no idea how he survived. By the time he was done, his legs were swelled up like elephant's legs. His lips were broken and bleeding. He had many... Uh, His mind, he was dehydrated to the point that he couldn't think straight. In the middle of all of that... He talks about joy that he experienced and how Christ encouraged him. He had visions during that time that I have no doubt, no reason to question, that God ministered to him with ministering angels in the presence of his Holy Spirit. Hour after hour passed. Day after day came and went. The time from midnight to morning was the worst. I had now not slept or eaten, not moved for four days. Standing in front of that wall, the interrogator watched especially carefully to catch me when my head nodded or my eyes closed. They took special delight in catching a twitching muscle or a blinking eye as an excuse for a blow. Also, they wore felt shoes, so I couldn't tell whether they were just behind me or across the room. On the fourth day, my hunger left and deep thirst took over. The blood began to settle in my legs and they began to swell up. My lips were dry, cracked and bleeding. Then another dimension of punishment took place the interrogators began to eat noisily and drink water close to me to increase my thirst. The torture was not only physical, but also very much mental. The deep burning thirst was like nothing I have ever experienced or heard about before. It was like a fiery ball of lava burning in my stomach and parching my lips. A deep fever consumed and racked my body. Dehydration set in and the agony became almost unbearable. To this day, when I read of a man dying of thirst in the desert, the all-consuming pangs of thirst hit me again, and whenever I, wherever I am, I must go and drink deeply of water. Another enjoyed drinking water a few feet away from me, and one twitch of my parched, cracked lips, and without warning, I was hit. The thirst raged on within me like a raging fever. To this day, I can't explain how I stayed on my feet through those days and nights. It had to be God with me, for no man has the strength in himself. 
Slowly, the questioning stopped. I became a, it became a waiting game. My interrogators waiting for my collapse. In my feverish condition, I began having hallucinations. Little spots on the white wall in front of me came alive. I saw faces of people of Ruth and Paul and Rhoda, then of the guards. Swirling patterns of blazing color were like a mad kaleidoscope in front of me. I was certain I was going mad. The next section of the book is, skips to day 10, never moving from that position. Just an example of a man who all he had to do was say, ah, I'm happy not to be a follower of Jesus today. Interesting book, you should read it. It's undesirable, this section. But I want you to notice in our passage as we conclude that it is unavoidable. It is unavoidable, this matter of being persecuted for our faith, for following after Christ. Notice how Jesus phrased this. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted. They are persecuted, so there is an inference. Now, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, so there is a great reward One of the reasons I think that we dread persecution is that we are much more in love with this world than the next. And that heaven doesn't drive us like it should. Verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you, okay? Say nasty things about you. They persecute you physically. They utter evil and lies about you falsely. Notice it's for my account. On my account, Jesus said. He's not talking about being stupid and getting in trouble yourself. He's talking about being tortured, persecuted for your faith, then you are to rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In verse 11 it says, when they do this to you. You get the idea that Jesus expects us to read this and know that it is going to happen. Let me just suggest a couple reasons in closing why we should expect persecution. I mean, in in a way, it goes without saying that the exclusive nature of the gospel is offensive to people. The gospel is exclusive. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father except through me. That in and of itself, in our pluralistic society, is offensive. You are considered an ignoramus if you believe there is only one way to know truth and to know God. In our pluralistic worldview society, you're allowed to make up your own truth. Truth can be whatever you want it to be. That is what I consider ignorant. And so the exclusive nature of the gospel and the fact that you have to end up at the cross and admit that you're a sinner, so the overwhelming pride inside the heart of mankind makes it a natural repulsive thing to admit weakness and to admit my sinfulness and to tell God, I know I'm a sinner and I'm not worthy. We live in a world where you're supposed to tell yourself how good you are. You're supposed to tell yourself how you can feel good by telling yourself how good you are. You're not good, you're bad, you're evil, your heart is bent towards evil. And until Christ gets a hold of you... The blood of Christ cleanses you from all sin. And you're a new creation in Christ. Your bent is going to be evil. Let me just suggest a couple things here, though. Why is this unavoidable? First of all, when we study Scripture, we see that godliness will will generate hostility. Godliness generates hostility. 
The text here, and you don't have to turn to it, is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. It says this, Indeed, Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He says, While evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse. Now, some of you have experienced some of this. You might not have had been beaten with sticks or bricks thrown at you, but you know... Number one, that godliness will generate hostility when you are the only one in an office pool who will speak up and say, I won't do that. That's wrong. Oh, you're goody two-shoes. Oh. Or you look at, a, at your boss and say, I will not falsify that report. And you say, what do I do? My boss wants me to falsify this report. I could lose my job. So you lose your job. That's what, but you don't understand. I make my house payment. Yes, you do, but you don't falsify the report. That would be part of a hostility that is generated from godliness. If you want smooth sailing, lie, cheat, enter into what everybody else does, and don't care what Jesus would do in that situation. Number one, godliness will generate hostility. Number two, conviction will attract animosity. Conviction will attract animosity. If you don't think I'm right, go downtown somewhere and find an abortion clinic and get you a sign that talks about the sanctity of human life and stand there and find out how many obscene gestures people will throw at you. Because there is an animosity that is created when people have a Christ-like conviction. Paul experienced this. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 27. He talks about how many times he was beaten with rods, whipped with the cat of nine tails, beaten and bruised and battered, all for what? His conviction that the gospel was true and the establishment of the church. Because of his conviction, they hated Paul. Finally, and you can turn with me to John chapter 15, and this is a similar passage of what we just read in Matthew John chapter 15, speak to this point, beginning with verse 18. Salvation will establish your identity. Salvation will establish your identity. Conviction will attract animosity. Godliness will generate hostility. And your salvation will establish your identity with Jesus. And if you do not have an identity that is established with Jesus, maybe you ought to ask yourself whether you have Jesus or not. John chapter 15, verse 18. Look at Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. We've already asked the question, why would they hate someone who only does good? If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Here's the point. When we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, our identity comes wrapped up in Christ, and Christ is to be seen in us, and it should not be such a rare thing for people to say, you remind me of someone. Uh, Jesus, that's it. Jesus. And if you remind people of Jesus, then a portion of the population is going to not like you. 
Because a portion of the population always hates Jesus. And so we have this identity with Christ. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4 says, Don't be surprised if this happens. If you want to read more about uh, some passages, and there are many more passages about persecution and trials for knowing Christ, a key passage is 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter says there, Don't be surprised if you suffer for righteousness' sake. He says... In fact, you should count it a joy when this happens. I think that's one thing I want to get out of this message. I don't always know what to get out of my own messages, so don't you feel badly. But I think that I'm going to meditate now on the lawnmower for the next few weeks about how, when persecution comes, and the text implies at least that it's inevitable, the current events tell me that We are certainly on a descending timeline where we will not experience freedom of speech, where we will have thought and mind control, and those of us who insist on speaking an exclusive gospel will be pressured into silence or suffer consequence. I like to think that I'm going to hold up under that, like Harlan Popov. But here's what my meditation is going to be. How to count that all joy. How for the sake of Christ and his gospel, that if we are impaired and lied about, and we are harassed and reviled, and we are imprisoned and beaten, Peter says, 1 Peter 4, 12 and on, that we are to count it a joy. Oh, not for your own dumb mistakes, he says, but for the cause of Christ. He says in verse 16 of 1 Peter 4, and don't be ashamed to suffer for Christ. I kind of think we're in the la-la land of saying what you would do. I use this illustration all the time and so probably have done it 39 times from the pulpit of saying, this is what I'm going to do when that happens. You know, the bank robbery illustration. If I was in a bank robbery and I was at the bank and an armed robber comes in, this is what I would do. Just be quiet, because you have no idea what you would do. You will probably cry. But this matter of being persecuted for righteousness' sake, what are you going to do? What are you going to do if you can't handle being laughed at at a country club when you're playing golf because of your testimony for Christ or your love for your wife and your children and everybody else is talking about other trashola stuff? And you won't make a stand in a context at work. What are you going to do if it really, really becomes real? I'm talking like sticks upside the head. I'm talking about being thrown down on hard concrete in a prison cell. I'm talking about no representation allowed. What are you going to do? You better somehow begin to meditate about how this can become a joy. I'm thinking of Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail, and it was after midnight. And they had just been preaching the gospel, 
And they had been shut down. They had been beaten with rods. Their backs were bleeding. No doubt they were running at least low-grade fevers by then. They were in stocks. They were in a horrible, damp, deep dungeon. No doubt there was vermin. There were rats. They had no ability to use the facilities other than just let it come out. And after midnight in that Philippian jail, they were singing hymns and praising God. They were an example of suffering with joy for Christ. I think we all better start meditating about this. We all better figure out what's really important to us. We all better figure out what Jesus means to us. To not be ashamed of his gospel, to not be ashamed of his exclusive claims, and to have a great joy. Oh, I think we need to be gentle and loving But if it's for the righteousness of Christ, enter in with joy because the prophets suffered and Harlan Popov suffered and that's really good company. Let's pray. So Father, would you teach us, challenge us to know how to lift up the name of Christ and Father, what a huge conclusion you gave through Jesus' teaching that ours would be the kingdom of heaven if we endure this persecution and this suffering. Not a salvation of works, but an end goal of our salvation that we have a day coming when it will be worth it all. So take our lives and let them be surrendered. Um, Hold us in your hand. Lord, we really need discernment for living in this day and age. We don't know all the answers. We can feel the press of the loss of freedom coming. We can sense change in our country as a politically correct thought takes over and as our culture becomes more base and anti-Christ. Would you help us to just lovingly, righteously represent Christ and then to bear any suffering that might come with that with joy and gladness like Paul and Silas. It's in Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen.